Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19, beginning in verse 23 and extending to verse 27. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, on this resurrection morn, we gather here in your presence to celebrate what it is that you have done. We would ask in these few moments as we spend together in these words just read from the Old Testament story of the life of Job that we see from time immemorial you have been speaking to us of the truth, of the reality of resurrection. Father, we would ask in these few moments together that we share, coming from a variety of different backgrounds, coming from a variety of different spiritual places, we would ask that you would capture our attention and that you would use these words and in these few moments to speak to us words that would transform our lives from the inside out. That by those who may not even know you now in this room, they would, in the moments together in this text, come into a saving relationship with you. And for those, Lord, who are here today who know you and who love you, but may be discouraged, and in all of the talk of the resurrection and life, they look at their lives and all they can see is suffering and sorrow. And for those in this room today who come in with the wind of the Spirit in their sails, singing the song of resurrection on the mountaintops, that you would flood us with no matter where we are in the course of life with grace just in proportion to the way that we need it. And so, Lord, as we pray this prayer, we would ask that you would answer it according to your wisdom. For only you know our hearts, and only you know your purposes. So come again and surprise us with your joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was cleaning out my shelves a few weeks ago, my bookshelves, that is, sorting through some volumes that I needed to get rid of and recovering some volumes that had been misplaced, reorganizing. It's a constant battle in my life to organize the books on my bookshelves. And I ran across two books that I had read years ago when I was in high school, two books that are similar in title but are actually opposite in terms of their focus and their attention. These are books that maybe some of you here in this room have actually read. 
a book by the title, Surprised by Joy. What is sometimes referred to as the autobiography of none other than C.S. Lewis, the famed apologist and story writer of the Chronicles of Narnia. And another book by R.C. Sproul, one of the 20th century's greatest theologians and preachers and teachers, a book by the title, Surprised by Suffering. In Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis it teaches us that one of the pathways that we really come to know God is through discovering the reality of joy in the world. Lewis, a longtime agnostic before he came to know the Lord, had always suspected that somewhere in the flashes of joy that we experience in this life, when we read an incredible book, or we enjoy a beautiful Easter morn and we look out at the nature that is outside and the flowers that are at bloom, or we enjoy a large cup of sweet tea, and we think to ourselves, these flashes of joy, these delights in this world, teach us something about what it is we're made for. And Lewis said that if true wisdom is to be found in the joys of this world, we would learn that those joys are merely the products that are meant to lead us to the source, the source that is the well of living water, God the creator of joy, the God who is the satisfier of all of our desires for joy. R.C. Sproul recognized that right alongside those joys that we enjoy here in the world is the constant reality of suffering. That right alongside the rapture of life, there is the rupture of life. And just as we will sometimes find ourselves, as I pray you will today, enjoying some fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ or with family members over good food and maybe some Easter egg hunts and some fun this afternoon, as you revel in the joy of this Easter day, that joy will surprise you. But for some of us, undoubtedly, this day will also be experiences of suffering, of those who are not with us, of those who don't know the Lord whom we love, reminders that the world is not as it was designed to be. And we will, in the midst of joy, find ourselves surprised by suffering. Lewis said joy was one of the ways in which we would find a pathway to God. Sproul says that if we actually tease out the exploration of the reasoning for suffering and the experience of often the loss of joy in this life, it too can become for us, as Lewis himself would say, a megaphone. That pain and suffering becoming a megaphone that arouses us to awaken to the reality of sin, to the reality of death, that we might once again find the God who gives meaning and purpose, even in the midst of our suffering, and shows us that he's not given up on us, even when we're in our lowest points. Maybe you have found over the course of your life that joy has at times been the trail that you have walked to finding richness in communion with the Lord, and maybe sometimes you have found that it has been suffering, that the Lord has used as a trail that leads you into communion and in desperate relationship with the Lord. No matter where it is you are this morning, whether you're riding the heights of joy or you're in the bottoms of despair, both, the Scripture teaches us, 
are pathways in which we can find God and enjoy the real purpose and the meaning for which he has made us, which is to be in fellowship with him. As we find ourselves this morning in what may seem, at least first glance, a strange passage to look at for Easter morn, uh, the dark story of Job, a man who at the opening of this book is introduced to us as a man of great wealth, a man of great family, and a man of great devotion to the Lord, described at the very opening chapters of this book as a man blameless, a man upright, devoted to God, and obedient to God. But a man who experienced the wheels of his life falling off. In the midst of his devotion to the Lord, in the midst of his blessing, surprised by suffering, Satan comes to the Lord in the opening of this book of Job and he raises a question about the integrity of this man, Job, of whom this book is written about. He questions whether Job's integrity and motivation regarding his love for God is really coming from a pure place. He says to the Lord, Satan speaking to God, do you really think Job loves you just for you? Do you think he fears you? for no reason whatsoever, as if to raise the question, don't you know that Job really is devoted to you because you've given him so many good things? You've made his life pretty cushy. He's enjoying the comforts of life, the blessings of family. He has everything that his heart could ever desire. The reason he loves you is you've been so nice to him. You've been so good to him. And I suspect that if you were to take away those things... He would remove his face from you and curse you. The only way to really know is to take everything from him. If you know the story of, of Job, you know that God said to Satan, you can plunder my servant Job, and plunder him he does. Through enemy invasions, through natural disasters, all of his flocks are destroyed. All of his servants are lost. He ultimately loses all of his children. In chapter 2, we see that even the final thing that he might be resting in, his health, is taken from him. We find him in one of the most pitiable and tragic states that we see of anyone in the scriptures. He's got loathsome sores all over his body. He's sitting in the morning of an ash heap and he's scraping his oozing sores with a broken pottery vase. A man who had everything has been utterly wiped out and he's become a man who has nothing. Now, just when you finish that moment in the story of Job, you think to yourself, this man, well, it can't get any worse for this man. And then it does. It gets worse because he's got three friends who decide to come comfort him, except that they don't. They come with their own explanations for why it is that Job is experiencing the things that he's experiencing. They come to minister to him perspectives and opinions about why they think he's going through all of these bad things. But their ministry to Job winds up only increasing his misery. As they try to explain to Job, Job, God is sovereign. 
He's all-powerful. God is righteous and just. He does everything according to the book, everything exactly as it ought to be. God is a God who rewards goodness. And he's a God who judges and punishes evil. You get the conclusion? Job, because evil has come to you, you clearly have done something wrong. Assert your heart. Uh, repent. Turn from your sin. Uh, plead with the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. And then commit your way to the Lord. Because if you are bad and you do bad, you'll get bad. And if you are good and you do good, you'll get good. That's how it works. The idea that there could be other reasons for what's going on, other forces, other complications in the world, other dynamics, isn't so far from the minds of these comforters that they wind up adding insult to injury. And Job is actually not experiencing any of those things because of his sin. He's not experiencing any of the surprise of the suffering because he's done something wrong. Uh, the scripture has made it very clear that this surprise of suffering is a plundering of the test of his faith at the hand of Satan himself. That another design was behind it. And that Job, as one commentator put it, is really a picture of the innocent sufferer. Now, as I say innocent, don't think I mean perfect. Don't think I mean that this man didn't have sin and that he didn't fall short of the glory of God in the way that Romans 3.23 tells us is the truth of every human being post the fall. No, we don't mean that at all. But he means to say that when Job was experiencing the blessings of the Lord, he was devoted to God and he was still devoted to God and he had done nothing that made sense as to why his life suddenly was sabotaged by suffering. He couldn't look at his life and say, oh, I see that I did that. I see that I did that. I see that I went wayward. I see that I lost my, my way into a disobedience. I see that I had fallen into unbelief and rebellion. No doubt the Lord is disciplining me, chastising me to bring, him, bring me back to himself. Undoubtedly, that's the case. Job had searched his heart, and none of those things were the case. He looked at his life in the way that he had always been devoted to the Lord. He was devoted to the Lord then in his benevolence and in his blessings as much as he was now in his suffering. And Job knew this in his bones. Throughout the book of Job, he is offering rejoinders, rebuttals to these explanations that he has done something wrong that has caused this suffering. And as we see in the passage that's before us, Job has begun to wonder is my life coming to an end? What will be the testimony of my life if I am to pass? Will I be the man who will be remembered only for the moments of loss and sorrow and suffering? Will I be known as the man who's sitting on the ash heap, scraping his oozing sores with broken pottery? Will the words of my friends... And the testimony that they have given, 
that I'm harboring some secret sin, that I haven't done business with the Lord, that I haven't gotten my heart right in relationship with him, will it be, as it were, that will be my last will and testament? Job fearful of that. Fearful of that. Here in Job 19 says, Oh, that a book was written with my words in it. Oh, if I could leave a testimony in, in, in a book that, that is the real, authentic, um, truth-telling story of the life of Job and the experiences of Job. Only if I could do that. Oh, but wait. A book can fall apart. A scroll can, can crumble. Ink can, can fade. No better. I, I want a rock. I want a rock where the words of my testimony are engraved in the rock and they're inlaid with lead so that they will, they will weather the, the test of time. I don't want the words about what others will think about me to be the lasting legacy about me. I want the words that I know to be true about me to be the words that live on in life. Some scholars have actually argued that Job here may be, in a sense, writing his own epitaph, asking, as it were, for his tombstone ahead of time so that he can put the last phrase that he really wants to be remembered about his life engraved in stone so that no one else can write something different. Uh, like, here was Job, a man with secret sin but would never confess it, who died in sorrow on an ash heap and will likely have no peace and rest. No, Job said, that's not fair. That's not true. I know my heart. I know my God. And he's struggling to reconcile what is taking place. The mystery of suffering. As he cries out that his words and testimony would be known, I want you to see that he makes a pivot in the passage. In verses 25 and 27, he moves from this heart cry to what, to what I'd like to call a confident hope. He begins to say, in this moment of suffering, he lifts up his head from the ash heap and with eyes of faith, look at what he sees. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. In the midst of the surprising suffering, a flash of revelation that we can tell by his emotive response, my heart faints within me, literally my, my bowels, my, my kidneys, the, the Hebrew term for the heart of the emotions, the seed of the affections are so stirred within me at this vision. It's as if he is saying, in the surprise of my suffering, I can in this ash heap with these loathsome sores, I am surprised by a vision of joy of a future joy that I can see. I can't experience it yet in my person now, but I can look with hope to a future that I know is certain. And the future that I see is of a living redeemer. A living redeemer. Now this word redeemer is the Hebrew word goel. It's a word that we see all over uh, the Old Testament. 
It's a word for someone who's in covenant with another, who stands in advocacy for another, who stands in the place of another, who labors on the behalf of another. In Numbers 35, 19, we're told that a redeemer is someone who would ensure that in a case of murder that your blood would be properly avenged. A redeemer in Leviticus 25 is someone who would help free you from captivity, either by paying a ransom for you or by taking you by force from your captors. In Psalm 119, a redeemer is described as someone who would initiate a lawsuit to gain your rights and reverse any injustice on your behalf to restore the honor of your name in the case of malicious slander. You see, this is exactly what Job needed. He needed someone to stand in for him when no one else believed him, when he had searched his own heart before the Lord and he couldn't make heads or tails of why the things that were happening to him were happening. He looked towards someone who would stand in his place, someone who would give testimony for him, someone who would carry forward to closure his case and clear his name. And far better than a dead book or a rock-hard stone, he turns his attention to a living redeemer, someone who will outlive him, someone who will stand for him when he can't stand any longer. He looks for a redeemer, and he sees with the eyes of faith one who is living, an advocate who will labor on his behalf. Notice that the living redeemer is in the posture of one ready to give a testimony. He says he sees this living redeemer and what's he doing? At last he's going to stand upon the earth. The language of standing, what is it? Well, it's courtroom language. It's the language of someone who is, who is raising their right hand and swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about the situation. Someone who is saying, I've come with all of the facts. I know the extent of the full of the circumstances. I have come to give a permanent testimony. And notice he's standing upon the earth. The word is literally the dust. Uh, the dust, likely the ash heap, uh, maybe the place of humiliation, uh, maybe the very place that Job himself was, was in, in suffering. Maybe it's a testimony to the grave. Uh, maybe it's a testimony that after Job has already died, in the place where his, his dust and his ashes are, the Redeemer will stand there. It's as if to say, in the place of my humiliation, the Redeemer will come and speak and exalt me. He will come and vindicate me. He will come and champion me. He sees a living Redeemer. He sees him in the posture of one who will give a permanent and sure testimony. But notice when he sees that this is going to happen. Because it's not just the who, the living Redeemer. It's not just the what, the testimony, but it's the strangeness of the when. Scholars have long puzzled over the language 
verses 26 and 27, if you look at it with me in the scriptures, you'll notice why they puzzle at it. Verse 26 says, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Now let's get this straight. After my flesh has decayed, after my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Joe, what are you putting down here? What are you trying to to say to us? It seems as if you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth, as if you're trying to say, I'm going to die and my flesh is going to be destroyed and I'm going to see God in my flesh, give testimony, permanent, sure, lasting, faithful testimony, clearing my name, bringing my case to closure. He seems as if he's saying the same thing out of both sides of his mouth. And of course he is. Because he's seeing the richness and the depth of a truth that maybe from the place in which he sat, he didn't maybe even realize the depth of what he was saying. You see, one of the beauties in reading the scriptures is that the scriptural authors, the human authors, aren't in control of all of the revelation of the text. They are carried along, Peter tells us, by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord speaking things through them that they knew to be true but didn't know the implications and the depth of even what it is that they shared. The later New Testament writers tell us that sometimes the Old Testament prophets were writing in such a way that they knew they were speaking not for themselves but for those who would come later, who would know more Because more revelation would be given and thus would see more in the revelation that had already been given and would understand that more because of the work of God in redemptive history unfolding in increasing measure as each page of history is turned. It's as if we are to read the scriptures backwards. And to understand that often the New Testament, with its light of revelation, is to be shined backwards on the Old Testament so that those things which are concealed but there might be revealed. And when we, in this dark book, in the midst of this surprising suffering, read of Job from the ash heap, seeing a vision of a living Redeemer, one standing to give permanent testimony on his behalf, describing a time in which his flesh will be destroyed and yet he in his flesh will see God. It's as if he's speaking to a reality that we have come to know as a resurrection. That all of the storylines and the mysteries of his life and the complexities of the collisions between joy and suffering in this existence when we go to our graves with questions still about why God has done what it is he has done. There is no full sense, even in the whole book of Job, that Job ever fully understood what was taking place in his own life and time. And what an encouragement that should be for so many of us in this room. Even as we're dressed up and looking nice on Easter morn. And looking forward to the joy of this day, and I pray in so many ways 
that is the case. But deep inside each and every heart and in every pew in this room, there are heartbreaks. And there are sorrows, inconsolable. There are unimaginable and unthinkable sufferings. And if they're not present in your life, there will just, just wait a little while. They'll be there. Job, looking through the lens of revelation, speaks more truthfully than he even knows. For he speaks as we would today as Christians, knowing that the grave is empty, that the rock was rolled away by the power of God himself, that Jesus has broken forth from the curses of that grave and has become victorious over our final enemy, that we have a living redeemer. And today, he stands for us, even at the right hand of the Father. He tells us living to make intercession. And even as the adversary, the accuser, rises up in temptation of you and of me and challenges whether or not we are truly gods as he gives a litany of the sins of our lives and the ways in which we have fallen short, Jesus stands on our behalf and he gives to us a true and permanent testimony and he clears our name. He closes our case. And he says of us, this one has been redeemed. My blood has purchased them. The record of all of their sins and thought, word, and deed expunged from the record. For I have bought them. They are mine. They are cloaked in my righteousness. No accuser can come and question the integrity of the work that I have done to purchase them for myself as my people. I will restore their honor. They will have my name, Christian, is upon them. And they will receive all the benefits that attend to that name. Now, as we think about it, what's remarkable in this story is the fact that the way in which Jesus, that living Redeemer, can do that and the means by which he can stand and say things about you in the clearing of your name and the expunging of your record is not that he can sit there and make things up because he knows what's in your file. He knows it's a checkered past. He knows you come from a, a motley crew. He knows the mess of your family inheritance and past. He, he knows the secret sins that no one else knows about you. It's not as if he's turning a blind eye. It's that he paid the penalty for it. And it's become for us the one true innocent sufferer. The one true innocent sufferer. You see, that's what we've always needed. This passage, this book, teaches us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Job painted as a man who's blameless, who's upright, who's devoted to the Lord, who came under intense suffering, not for anything that he did personally, 
for which he earned the right for that discipline from the Lord, he becomes for us a picture of a greater Job, an innocent sufferer who would come on the behalf of his people and would receive the surprising attacks at the hand of his own father, being pierced for our transgressions, being crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement of our sin that would bring us peace, his wounds being our healing anointment, for the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the great commentators on the the book of Job, Christopher Ashe, writes this, it is precisely the bodily resurrection of Christ that gives us the assurance that Job's confidence was not wishful make-believe. No, the Father stood upon Christ's tomb and acted as Christ's Redeemer when he vindicated him through resurrection. And that same God in Christ will stand upon the grave of every man and every woman in Christ to act as their Redeemer. And on that last day, he will stand upon your ashes if you're in Christ. He will stand upon your graves in Christ. And the epitaphs of the words of whoever spoke about you after you were gone will be nothing in light of the permanent record of Jesus and his purchase of you through his blood. That he will indeed vindicate you by grace. And so it's appropriate that at the end of the gospel of John that the very first resurrection sighting of Jesus would be among the graves. That as Mary Magdalene would come that morning to embalm with the spices, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ still wrecked in her suffering, guess what? Surprised with more suffering. As she shows up and his body's gone. And the only conclusion she knows to draw is that some wicked, evil person has come in and snatched his body and taken it away. The picture that's given of her in John chapter 20 is that she's weeping on the ground, surprised yet again with a deeper suffering. When one who she supposes is the gardener comes up next to her and says, why are you weeping? And he says to her, Mary. And it's as if she looks up from the ash heap of the surprised suffering into the face of a surprising joy. That her Savior, the Lord, was alive. That there would be no need for the spices that she had prepared for the embalming of Jesus. Only the sweet aroma of celebration would fill those graves which had in that moment become the beginning of the resurrection fields. Jesus, the first fruits from the grave, and we, the harvest, those in Christ to come. Friends, today as we gather in the presence of the Lord, we will over and over be reminded of these truths that we're discussing today and considering in depth 
surprised over and over as we will be with suffering, the mystery and the struggle of it. But God, in the moments of our weeping, in the morning upon the ash heap, will come to us and he will say, Steve, Jim, Janice, Ryan, Mary, Barbara, Pam, Karen, Mark, Nate. And we will be surprised by joy again. For this story has only just begun. This is just the first fruits of the resurrection. The best joy of all is yet to come. Father in heaven, fill us with that joy right now and let us sing with worshipful abandon as we dance on the floor to the recognition that all of our sorrows are being scattered to the ends of the earth and the solid joys and lasting pleasures Zion's children truly know. Father, today, let today be true Resurrection Sunday. Bring us from death to life. Bring us from glory to glory. And through whatever sufferings you bring into our life, prepare us for the eternal weight of glory. This we ask in Jesus, our risen Savior's name. Amen.